0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global. And it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com.
1: I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Xavier Helgson, the co founder and former CEO of Zola Electric. Zola is a provider of solar and storage systems in Africa. Since its founding in 2012 as Off Grid Electric, the company has served over a million people with clean power in five countries. Over the years, Zola has evolved from a small, scrappy startup that offered basic energy packages into a hardware and software company that installs sleek, scalable power systems that rival the grid in performance. In this episode, I spoke with Xavier about how he got interested in energy access, the complexities of setting up a company as an outsider in Tanzania, and how Zola shifted into designing its own hybrid system. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse headquarters in Oakland, California in 2019. Right, Xavier, welcome to Powerhouse and welcome to What It Takes.
2: Thanks, Emily. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. For those of you here tonight and those of you listening, imagine your life without electricity. This is the reality for 14% of the world's population or over a billion people. Yet the majority, 95% of those living without electricity are in Sub-Saharan Africa and developing Asia. Another billion cannot rely on their electrical supply with voltage spikes and long outages disrupting their businesses and lives denying their full economic and social potential. Zola Electric, formerly known as Off Grid Electric, is tackling this daunting challenge by developing solar and battery systems that meet the difficulties of an unreliable grid. Since you, Xavier, and your co-founders started Zola, you have not only raised about $150 million, but have also provided power to over a million people. So we're really excited to share your story here tonight. Thank you. Welcome. Let's start with where the story begins. You grew up in a small iron mining town in northern Minnesota. It was 60 miles from the nearest movie theater. And in the winter, I understand that you rode to school in a snowmobile. No. Um, You're the oldest of three boys. Your mom was a full-time mom. Your dad was a legal aide. Tell us about the town that you grew up in and what were you like growing up?
2: Well, as uh, as you and I talked about, I was a little awkward as a teenager. Um, I was, uh, was very into um, computers. I was um, uh, Silver Bay was uh, the Minnesota, the town I grew up in, was extremely isolated. Um, it's not one of these hippie small towns. This is like basically a big iron mining plant, and and that's kind of that's kind of it. Um, and so I think I spent uh, a lot of time trying to figure out how to get out of Silver Bay, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, in, that included um, all manner of entrepreneurial hustles starting at about age 11. Um, so by uh, age, age 14, I leased a mini golf course and that was kind of the first time I managed a business. Um, that was, it was a little frustrating that I was too young to work legally to me, so I, I It didn't got, stop you? Didn't, didn't stop me from uh, employing myself, a uh, nice. little workaround.
1: And so I understand. (laughs) Um, So I understand. Yeah, I was super into computers. At 12, you learned to program. In high school, you were building computers. And so you decided to study management information systems at Notre Dame. Tell us about your decision to take that path.
2: Yeah, so I, I got to I got to college and I started computer science, and then I, I guess I realized how hard like real programming is, and, and so rather than being like the worst programmer in computer science, I decided to be the best programmer in the business school. <laughs> 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 Shout out to all the MBAs. <laughs> and so uh, yeah, that that also um, gave me a little more time to indulge my entrepreneurial itches. So I. Um, I started a website, uh, this would have been like, I don't know, 90, 98, 99, uh, it started with hacking the school search engine, um, so there was this, um, uh, there was this, there's a way you could search all the students, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't very useful, um, but I realized that you could actually, with a little tweaking, make it very precise, so you could, if you met a girl named Mary, and she lived in McGlynn Hall, you could then search all the Marys in McGlynn Hall and figure out who you met. And, Find her phone number. <laughs> so you,
0: so,
1: so just to make sure we all understand. So yeah. you hacked the student uh, network system to get access to girls' phone numbers.
2: Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's called uh, product market fit. So yes. Uh, <laughs> So um, this my personal web page became one of the top visited sites on nd.edu as a result because everybody else was using my search engine to do the same thing. They could rate their teachers and they could. Um, uh, we had a feature called the eDogbook, and so we had it. We had all these kind of um, fun campus things we were doing back back in the year 2000.
1: <laughs> so very productive college experience. In 2001, you graduated, and at 23. Uh, you were in your college town of South Bend, Indiana. Your friends had left for their fancy consulting and banking jobs, and you were left with the job of selling all their stuff, including their old textbook, other than the mini-golf course, uh, Better World Books, and then tell us about the path from Better World Books eventually to Zola Electric.
2: That's a that's a great question. So... Um, so Better World Books started, um, I guess, really realizing uh, that there was a market for used textbooks on the internet. And again, uh, we have to kind of zoom back to that time. So um, uh, we, I, my, my friends had left for their jobs, and the dot-com crash had just happened. So I remember going to Google's Help Wanted page, and there was no jobs. There was literally no jobs even at Google. And so as a programmer, you couldn't get hired. I remember running around New York City for three weeks trying to find somebody who wanted to pay me to program, and then nobody would. Um, so I ended up back in the the small town. Just uh, I think I was tutoring members of the baseball team. I was teaching them calculus, which is a little bit of a thankless job, but that's what I was doing. And uh, um, and I was I was working on projects. I was doing some web design. And and um, so we were just selling you know a few textbooks ourselves um, on the internet. And we we realized that these would sell for a lot of money, even the books that that uh, uh, you know the bookstore wouldn't buy. Um, But the question was, how do you get them? Because we didn't have the money to buy the books. We didn't, um, you know, we didn't know what you would buy anyway. And so we came up, we realized, oh, I bet people would just give their books if we were working with a good cause. And I'd wanted to start something that was a social impact business in some way. Um, And, and it was kind of like a aha moment. And so we ran that first book drive uh, and and just put out, I mean, our startup costs were $60. I mean, we just printed posters and we got big cardboard boxes from waste management and we put them out and collected books at the end of term. And like we had 2000 books, which is a lot of books. And so we took them back and cataloged them over the summer and then put them on the internet. And I think the first day of sales, we sold $5,000 worth of books. It was just this crazy experience. Um, And so we decided that we could actually make a business out of it. And uh, that became uh, working with... Working with libraries, and so we, we, Better World Books today is the biggest provider of of this service to libraries. Where if you give your books to, I don't know, Oakland Public Library or something, they may well take those, send those on to Better World Books. Better World Books sells them on the internet, and then Oakland Public Library and a literacy program they name get a get a share. So Better World Books has raised about twenty five million dollars for literacy with this model over over that period of time. Um, but the thing that ties it to my work today is that we became uh, the biggest funder and the biggest source of books for a program called Books for Africa, actually out of Minnesota. And so um, that uh, partnership took uh, took me to Africa uh, a number of times. And um, it was on the second uh, second trip to Africa, um, I was um, you know I was just fascinated. I think the first trip I. I climbed Kilimanjaro, and we visited some some schools and uh, some you know some recipients of books. Um, second trip, I got to explore a little more. So, with one of my friends who was a kind of old hand of Africa, we went around well, we went around Zambia, we went around uh, Malawi, and then at a certain point, I went I went hitchhiking in Malawi. Um, so I was, as one does, as one does. So the, so the group uh, I was with, they wanted to go back to the capital, and it was, it was a bunch of, you know, really nice people, but I, they were not quite as adventurous as, as, as I was. And so I said, okay, guys, just leave me on the corner here. I'll be fine. You guys go that way and just drop me at the corner and I'll figure it out. And there was a big argument for about 15 minutes. They decided I wasn't going to change my mind. And so they, they let me, they let me just wait on the highway in Malawi for a car to come by. Um, but I did that ended up in, in a small town uh, where you could go scuba diving which is what I wanted to do is go scuba diving with uh, with the chicklids uh, in Lake Malawi and uh, and that was the first time I actually ended up in an off-grid a pure off-grid village um,
1: and it wasn't it wasn't a tiny village right there's 20,000 people yet nobody there had
2: now nah, nobody there had power and okay. I, I don't think I even realized when I first came there that oh nobody nobody's got electricity here um, but then, I was. I went scuba diving. My instructor invited me back to his house, and then it got dark that night. And I realized, oh, whoa! It got. It gets really, really dark when nobody has lights. And then he just showed up carrying a kerosene lantern at the place I was staying, <laughs> and I went off following him down these dark alleys and and you know um, behind. Uh, all these kind of dirt dark alleys and I was thinking oh my god if I disappear here like no one will ever know where I am <laughs> and uh we went to his house and, and ate dinner with his family by the light of a, a kerosene lamp and um that was uh that was my experience of really smelling those fumes and and realizing that wow even though this guy has this you know kind of lucrative job and speaks good English and takes tourist scuba diving he's um You know, he just doesn't have any electricity, he has no solution. And um, I I was so fascinated with the revolution in renewable energy and what was going to happen.
1: So what did you do with that thought and experience that you had in Malawi? You came back, you're still leading Better World Books, and what happened next?
2: Uh, I guess it just started kind of incubating. And I didn't even, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do anything about this. I didn't really have a concrete business idea. I didn't know, I didn't know electrical uh, stuff. I didn't know electrical engineering. Um, and so, uh, but I did meet a guy by chance who had gotten the, the Skull Scholarship at Oxford. And, I, um, and it's this amazing program with, with very unique criteria. I mean, you basically have to have been a social entrepreneur in your 20s. Um, but either be ready to do something different or have that not work out in a way that you can go do an MBA for a year. But if you've done that, then you get an MBA paid for at Oxford and it's in 12 months. Um, and you get this amazing network. So, so I met him and he'd done it. I thought, wow, well, if I was offered that, I would go do that. So, so it was really taking the year at Oxford, taking a step back and about halfway through, I guess I wasn't sure whether I was going to go back to better World books and, and help grow that business, um, or, or do something completely different. And I just, um, you know, I, I right from the time I got to Oxford, this was kind of the obsession and I, you know, I was checking on the book business, but what I really wanted to do is go to Africa and try to figure out how to, how to give people power.
1: And then where did the the first capital come from that enabled you to take that idea and actually build it into a company?
2: Well, it's a little bit of a circuitous story. (laughs) So uh, the very first capital actually didn't end up materializing. There was this crazy competition at Oxford. It was a business plan competition. Where the advertised prize was $250,000, and so um, myself and um, uh, Josh and Erica, who started the company with me, um, we, we you know we entered ourselves in that, and we got all the way to the finals, and it worked like uh, kind of worked like Shark Tank. There was uh, this guy, this one like fashion mogul from the UK, and this other like T- TPG private equity guy, and. <laughs> Neither one of them ever knew anything about energy or Africa or anything else. But basically, you go up on stage and pitch them for three minutes. And then they're like, thumbs up or thumbs down. And so they give us the thumbs up. And we're like, oh, great. We got the money to start the business. Um, And then there's uh, this somehow Oxford has, because it's a little bureaucratic, has this very stingy British venture capitalist who kind of sits between you and the money. And so... (laughs) And so then we were kind of, you know, we were kind of counting on this money. And so, and we're like, who on earth would invest in like us just moving to Africa? Because the thesis was, hey, we aren't going to build any technology here, even though that's what most people in the sector had kind of done. Is they'd spent two years working at Stanford or something like that, they built some technology they thought was going to work, and then they actually go try to sell it, and inevitably learn about a hundred different things. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, let's do it the opposite way. Let's go there. Try to sell only what we can buy off the shelf, even if it's not economic, find product market fit, and then build technology. Uh, we had no customers. <laughs> we had we were just like we will move to Africa. <laughs> I started a book selling company. <laughs> like really convincing pitch.
1: <laughs> but that was that was enough to raise five hundred thousand dollars.
2: It, it was. It was. Um, thank God for Erica, my co-founder, who spoke Swahili and had been in Tanzania for 10 years. And um, I think also, thank God I went to the TED conference. And and so so I met this very nice uh, Kiwi named Sam, um, this, this uh, very nice guy. And we just kind of became buddies because we were both in e-commerce. Anyway, Sam had founded this company and, um, and uh, I called him up and um, I think luckily I called him after I, I made almost every other call because I knew that I knew he'd be very likely to to invest. Um, but, um, you know, I kind of made the other calls, made all my bad pitches. And then I <laughs> called up Sam and made a slightly better pitch. And I think it would be about three minutes. And he's like, OK, well, what do you need? And I'm like, I didn't know that you were going we to get there that quickly. So I kind of thought of the first number I could think of. And I was like, 150,000. He's like, OK, let's do that. Um, he agreed on
1: the spot in yeah, three just,
2: minutes. Yeah, he just agreed on the spot. And um, he's like, OK, but I'm going to invest out of my charity because uh, your odds of success are low. <laughs> 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 and so that was his basic uh, thesis was that uh, he would just invest out of his charity and uh, it would at least have a slightly uh, better chance of returning money than just giving the money away. And
1: then where did the other 350 come from?
2: Uh, so Sam, so once then, once Sam and I had that exchange and then we, um, I kind of told him how much I thought we needed. and. Um, then he brought along another guy I'd met at the TED conference, um, a very nice Australian guy who'd basically invented Australian QuickBooks, and, and that was also worth a lot of money. Um, and so uh, they, he invested 100k, and then um, the other, the other 250 came from uh, Erica's dad and uh, his business partner, who uh, actually went to far corners of the world and turned around oil refineries. That was, that's their business. And so. Um, logistics and uh, emerging market experience is actually somewhat, somewhat relevant, and uh, they, were, they were a big help in the early days. And so um, Erica's dad you know, didn't want to do anything except invest because um, you know, of the family um, uh, dynamics, so his business partner was the one who sat on the board and, and basically made decisions on, on behalf of their investment.
1: And so with this 500K, how soon after that business plan competition that you won did you actually move to Tanzania, and what did it take to make that move?
2: Um, well, I think part of it was realizing that we had to go all in and move there, not just spend three months there or any, and Eric, I think once it was right after we won the competition that Erica, you know, turned to Josh and I literally that night and she's like, okay, guys, we're really going to do this. You're picking up and moving to Tanzania as soon as we're done with classes and and, uh, and we kind of Josh and I can look at like, okay, well we've got some other people to convince in our lives. We're not, <laughs> not just solo here. And, and so, um, but, but we ended up, uh, we ended up moving um, and, uh, and, and settling in there. I guess it would have been about eight months probably after, uh, after that competition. So there was a kind of a period of time um, where I actually did some more work on the business with, uh, for the mobile phone industry. So they, so I, negotiated this internship with uh, the mobile phone industry where basically I'd study power in the developing world and how it could be like the mobile phone industry. And so they, they flew me all over the place to go write this report for them.
1: Nice, so you got you got your flights covered? Got my flights covered. Very entrepreneurial. Yes, <laughs> got um, my
2: diligence covered, so it was, it was good.
1: And you had your first kid at the time, right?
2: I did, I yeah. did. So I had a little little one and a half year old I had to move to, uh, move to Tanzania.
1: What was the first, let's say six months like in Tanzania?
2: Um, You know, it's honestly really kind of difficult to move to a place like Tanzania if you haven't lived there before. I would say just, you know, I, I just give the example of a car, right? So if I move to somewhere in the U.S., well, either I, you know, already have a car or there's lots of places to buy a car. If I don't have the cash to buy the car, I can get some financing, in, um, in Tanzania, it's like, well, you got to find the guy who sells the cars, but he's not the guy who owns the cars. He's the guy who just knows where you can buy them, and then he'll take you around, and then you'll try them out, and they all have problems, and they've all been imported from Japan, and they are only, like, all, all the words on the screen are written in Japanese, but that's what you buy. But then you can only buy it in U.S. dollar cash, so then you have to figure out how to get $100 U.S. dollar bills, a sufficient quantity to, to buy a used Japanese RAV4. And like, that's just so you can get around. <laughs> and so once you're there, then you have to figure out where the grocery store is. And, you know, you just figure out a place to rent. And so there's so many life logistics that go into just, I think, just moving there. And when all you want to do is you want to just get there and get to work on the business.
1: While you were living there and adjusting to life there, were there any memories that stand out as things that were kind of like the most extreme or the most just like, oh God, why am I here?
2: Uh, there was the time the Maasai barricaded the place we lived. That was a little that was a little scary. Tell us, tell us about that. <laughs> so, um, so Josh and I, two two of the three founders, uh, we lived on a place that was actually kind of beautiful. It was this big uh, this big land area that they were eventually going to build a medical school on, but it was like ten years in the future they were going to build that. So there were these little groups of houses there that, you know, and it was easy to find a place to rent. It was very peaceful. It was very beautiful. So thought, wow, this is perfect. So we're settled in there. And then Josh like- Josh had
1: kids as well, right? Yeah, had Josh, had,
2: Josh had two kids. And so um, like all of a sudden we start hearing like this, like yelling and drumming and like, uh, you know, really pissed people. <laughs> and I guess it had to do with the Maasai guys were used to grazing their cows on this land, but the owners of the land had put up a big fence Said you couldn't graze your cows here. And so there's all this like tall, glorious grass like growing inside the fence, but the Maasai guys weren't allowed to go in. So they, they decided the way to make their feelings known was to dig a giant ditch uh, outside of the property so that nobody could come and go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so
1: you were so, trapped in your own.
2: Yeah, so we were property. trapped in basically this. I mean, it was a big area, but like we were like, we couldn't come and go for a little bit. And then a security company with guys with guns finally had to come and like, physically escort us off the property, and wow. um, and that all somehow blew over like a week later, but <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things you just don't don't expect.
1: That's intense, too, with young kids.
2: It, it is, it is, because I think that's, you know, that's the one thing where you kind of say, okay, well, I can take, you know, I can take a certain amount of risk for myself, but if I have kids, I mean, Josh's daughter got pretty sick within a few weeks of, of being there, and sometimes you just get weird stuff there that is not like the stuff you get in the U.S., and A lot of the doctors don't know what it is, or there's like only one good hospital, but that's in Nairobi. And so you really got to decide when you're going to go there. So I would say there's a lot of like kind of small, small logistics that that add up.
0: What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com.
1: Given how established Nairobi is relative to cities in Tanzania, why why Tanzania? Uh,
2: we, we had a kind of, again, we had this very customer-centric view. So we had this view that our success was going to be proportional um, to I I later codified that into the number of living rooms that we, that we sit in. And so that I, you know, I I personally have been in well over a thousand living rooms and that's um, I I think if I think about the stuff we build, I have some of our, our products here. I think about, okay, I put myself in those living rooms and I, I think about how this is going to work there. What appliances do people have? What don't they have? What's important to them? What's not important to them? What, what does it look like? Um, and so, you know, having that view, um, Arusha was a really unique place because it was this international gateway because of the uh, safari industry. So you can fly in and out of Arusha every day to Amsterdam or Istanbul um, or Nairobi for that matter, um, but you know you can be off-grid uh, 10 minutes from the Kilimanjaro International Airport. I mean you literally will drive by off-grid households just driving from the airport to the to the main road. So it's it's a place where you really can I think I can can spend a lot of time with customers and our our first office was in a neighborhood where at least half the houses were off grid.
1: Wow. Uh, how how did you get your first customers and what was the first product?
2: So um, so the first product I, I now that I'm first time I've thought about this but it's actually somewhat similar to the Better World Books startup which was put a poster up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think
2: I think that's my advice to entrepreneurs. <laughs> Whatever, whatever you want to sell, make a poster of it, <laughs> <laughs> show that to people. <laughs> and if they're not excited about the poster, they won't be excited about the product. <laughs> and so so we essentially... Um, you know, made a made a little shop right on the main street by our office, and we made these posters, and the posters kind of had these three offerings. And it was, you know, based on some research we had done and a bunch of people's living rooms we'd been in and said, okay, well, it's kind of like small, medium, big. Here's the small package, the medium one, the big one. Um, and they were, at that point, it was just uh, phone chargers and um, lights and... Um, uh, radios, I think were the three things that we would, we would bundle in with the system and it'd be a solar and battery, uh, system. And, and so, yeah, we put up these signs and, uh, and then we just kind of talked to everybody that came in and explained to them how great it would be having solar and how much money they'd save on kerosene and, you know, how it was no risk. Uh, that was the other big part of the thesis was basically, if you can take out, all the risk of the product, then it's far more likely that people will adopt it because the, the poorest people in the world are actually the most risk-averse people when it comes to financial decisions. And, and
1: take – go ahead. Oh, yeah. no. T- taking out the risk, meaning you were financing it so that they didn't have to put up the upfront capital to buy what was, I think, a five-watt, like a small, really small yeah. solar panel, but enough to power a couple lights, the radio, um, the cell phone charger.
2: Yeah, so it was, it was financing it. So we were essentially – pioneering what became the prepaid solar industry, so or pay as you go is, as it's called. Um, and and we knew that. that was we knew that was what we wanted to do. And so um, yeah, it was about finding it was doing that, but then not only that, but it was after sales service and it was okay, well, what happens if I don't pay? And uh, what and, you happens know, if you don't pay? Well, at, at the time it was actually a pure service offering. So it was um, so we would take it out of your home if you didn't pay for like a long period of time, like months and months. But if you didn't pay for one day, that was fine, and you could just kind of you could just kind of keep paying as you go, um, and so eventually, as we as we matured, we said, okay, well, we do have to have a li- we have to be a little more strict than that because you know the hardware costs the same whether it's turned on or turned off. So mm. you obviously want it in people's houses where they're where they're actually going to use it.
1: What did the more strict
2: version look like? Uh, so the more strict version has kind of become okay if you um, I mean it's technically if you haven't paid in thirty days, but it's uh, and we find that. Um, you know there's some seasonal effect but in general if folks haven't paid in 30 days obviously they've gone back to doing whatever they're whatever they're doing whatever they were doing before or or maybe they bought some some alternative or or something
1: um so in 2012 about 12 months uh, after you arrived and that first $500,000 you had spent, you raised a million dollars uh, with a valuation of $4 million to build the prepaid software or the hardware yourself. Um, who joined that million dollar round and what did you build with it?
2: Um so that round actually was one of I'm, i mean I think this is an entrepreneurial truism, but I think that that round was harder to raise than any of the higher dollar rounds that we've raised because I think we were too early to show a ton of traction. The thing we had done to show traction was okay, we put up the posters, we'd sign people up for a program, but we didn't have uh the prepaid hardware yet. So we'd found a company that had made something that would deliver approximately the service we wanted. Um, and we bought their hardware, and then we would just have a big Maasai guy go walk around everybody's houses uh, once a month, <laughs> and he'd say, okay, well, either give me $5 or give me your system back, and, and it's a very simple... <laughs> that was your uh, collections. That was our collections, very simple but but effective uh, prepaid <laughs> system, and believe it or not, that that showed the payment rates, and it showed the um, uh, the customer satisfaction to get, get that, that next round raised, and so... Um, I think one of the real heroes of the company is a woman named Nina, who um, works for my friend Sam, who, um, who uh, the New Zealand guy who who manages all of his investments, actually both for profit and nonprofit. And so she got really excited about what we were doing and thought it was really important. And so she just went around to every like impact investor in the world and more or less bothered them until they <laughs> they would take a call with me and and um, and then some of them ended up going alongside her so we were we were like the first for-profit investment that a group called the Malago foundation which is based in San Francisco had had made um, and uh, they're you know they're they're phenomenal uh, and they and they explicitly said we are only investing for impact we do not mm-hmm. care about the financial return we, mm-hmm. we just uh, we just think if this works it'll make a big impact and, uh, and so, yeah, we're going to, we're going to invest some money. And once you have commercial investors, then we'll go, we'll go do other things. We'll, we'll make grants. Um, so it, it was them, it was some other impact investors who, who kind of rounded out that first round. Gotcha.
1: And so you were buying power controlled boards, but you were building at that point with that capital, building your own prepaid boards. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So our first engineering project, again, because uh, I think anybody who's been in hardware knows a million dollars isn't a lot to build hardware, let alone, um, you know, build hardware and run a distribution business in Tanzania and everything else we were, we were trying to do. So, um, you know, what, what we did was said, okay, we got to do the minimum, you know, the minimum hardware possible. And, and the minimum hardware for us was, okay, build a, build a board that will do the payment control and then partner with the, uh, the company that was doing the, the charge controller and the other, the other electronic bits of the solar system they'd keep doing that. And so we were able to work with their contract manufacturer as well so that basically we were just building the payment board and we had a custom enclosure, but then we were able to actually get hardware in the market that actually worked and build a software back end that processed the payments and unlocked the, the systems and show the whole thing working. And that was, that was essentially, that took about a year, but that was, that was what opened the door to, to be able to raise more money.
1: Um, and you did. You raised your Series A, which was seven point six million. And people who know the Zola Electric story know that Solar City was part of that round. How did you? Well, I guess why? Why did Solar City join? And particularly, why did Lyndon Rive initiate the investment into Zola?
2: Um, well, Lyndon had had a very uh, personal experience with kerosene. Uh, so he grew up in South Africa. Um, and when, uh, his house had electricity, uh, but they had, uh, like many South African homes, they had, they had uh, quarters on the, uh, you know, they had another little house on the ground where a woman who was, uh, you know, the maid and the cook would, would live. Um, and so um, she had a kerosene fire one day, and, uh, and basically he was, he was home, he was like 15 or 16, and, and the whole thing was up in flames and she had her baby inside, mm. and so he ran in, like, and tried to save the baby, and basically found the baby, and came out, but it was, like, too late, and so the, so the baby had, had died in the, in the kerosene fire, in, in the house, so a uh, very, very intense experience for him, and uh, so I think he'd always kind of carried that in the back of his mind, and so I think when we, when we met Lyndon and Pete, um, you know, they liked what we were doing, and it also, uh, I, I think it, Served uh, certainly for Lyndon, it, it was okay. I just want to, just want to support this, and so he had originally decided, thought he was going to make a personal investment in the company, and then he took it to the Solar City board, and they said, "Look, this is solar, and you might go international, and so you know it, it could be a conflict here. So if you want to do it, let make it a corporate investment, and and we can we can look at it."
1: From that Series A, you went on to raise a 16 million B. Um, SolarCity participated again. Omidyar and Vulcan and others joined, and then a 25 million Series C led by Double Bottom Line investors via Nancy Fund. Um, and then you've also raised debt, so a total of about 150 million raised. What did you learn about the fundraising process through those subsequent rounds?
2: Um, that's a that's a great question. I did that was that was like a master's degree in capital raising in this <laughs> business for sure. <laughs> Because um, everything about um, you know my previous business, Better World Books, we were bootstrapped. We raised um, we raised our first equity when we were at sixteen million in revenue. You know because we and we built our whole cash flow model around that. And so it was a little counterintuitive for me to be in a business that was basically just a cash gobbler um, in the sense that, okay, I'm building hardware, and that takes upfront investment. I'm building software, but I'm also building a distribution business, but then I'm also financing my customers. So even after I find my customers, then I still have negative cash flow rather than positive cash flow. And so um, it, it became a... Core competency, and I think if you would ask, um, you know, you'd ask Lyndon and Pete, Solar City's core competency, it was it it was capital. Uh, It was capital raising and allocation and structuring, along with uh, physical logistics and and deployment. and in some ways, um, that was the story for us in the early days, I think, before it became clear just how much we could differentiate on the hardware and product side, um, which which is more true in our case, because we're selling a customer a complete energy system that includes uh, essentially a very smart battery, and uh, sometimes includes a bunch of appliances al- along with it. Um, so I think in terms of raising capital, I think what... What really becomes important is you, um, you have to be really clear about what your thesis is. So what, your, what is the economic thesis that you will set to prove or disprove with this capital? And then also how, you, how will you de-risk the investors? So how will you create as much potential upside as possible by proving this thesis that ideally you've already shown as many data points as possible to prove that the thesis is accurate? Um, but then also how do you, even if you don't hit it out of the park right away, how do you make sure you have a stable enough business and a lowest enough cost structure that you can still, um, you can still raise capital in the future and and grow if things don't, don't go to plan. What
1: was, as you raised those, those later rounds, what was coming really easily to you in the company and what was most
2: difficult? Um, I think that what was coming easy to us was we were getting better and better at meeting our customers' needs. So I think we were, um, we were really clear. There's been some in, you know, so we kind of were part of kickstarting a sector. I was just having lunch with a a friend of mine, actually. And he was, he was saying, yeah, it's cool the business you started, but like, this is a sector now. And it's a big sector. And it's got capital, and it's got all sorts of things in it. um, And, uh, you know, that's, that's really important. Um, And so I think, I think for us, you know, as, as a sector shakes out, in the early days, we, we just had to do we had to do everything. Um, we had to be a distribution company and a direct sales company and an after-sales service company and a hardware company and a financing company. And, you know, as a sector matures and as a company matures, then you, you zoom more and more in. And, okay, what are we good at and what do we really want to do? And I think some folks in our, in our uh, sector have said, well, you know, I'm really a finance company at my heart. I'm really a distribution company at, at my heart. And I think we've, we've just gotten clearer and clearer. Now, we, we are really uh, a hardware and software solutions company at our heart. And we will, we will run our own distribution networks to the extent they're necessary. But the second we find somebody who can get our system installed in a customer's home better than we can, we're, we're very happy to let them do that. And the second we can find somebody who can give our customer a loan better than we can, mm. you know, we're, we're very happy to, to let them do that
1: the configuration of the founding team especially has changed a lot so your two co-founders Erica and Josh have moved on to other things you were CEO now CTO tell us about Erica and Josh's transition out how and why that happened and then why you transitioned from CEO to CTO
2: yeah it's um i think you know it has been a relatively long journey i mean startup years are like dog years right <laughs> so it's like uh, i think it's been it's been about 8 years now and i think In some ways, our companies look completely different every two years. I mean, we we have actually we've moved very quickly as a company, um, and uh, as as we've gotten you know gotten clear on theses and everything else. So you know, originally like really everything was central around distribution in Tanzania, that, that, that became the most critical thing in the early days, was doing the sales, doing the distribution, um, getting it out to the last mile in, in, in Tanzania. And I mean, there's nobody better in the world than, than Erica at that. Um, and then as we, uh, again, as we kind of matured and we became multi-country and became more hardware focused, well, Erica's Erica's an early stage entrepreneur. Um, you know, a lot like me in that sense. Very, very entrepreneurial. And so, I think she kind of looked at, okay, well, do I want to be based in Tanzania for another, you know, another three or four years, and what, you know, what is the best thing for me to do, or do, do I want to go start something new? And and that was also at that point we had become, you know, we'd set up our base in in Silicon Valley, and so we started to build the hardware team here. Um, and I think in some ways a similar thing happened with with Josh, where we all—I mean, all three of us—are very entrepreneurial, and that's why we were the ones that would dive in and move to Africa and try to try to figure this out. And I think for uh, for myself, the past few years, it's been um, I, at least as an entrepreneur, I always look at things as like I'm only here to fill a gap till someone better than me shows up at at that job, and then I can. Get out of the way, and I can do whatever is useful, and I can do that for whatever amount of time I, I need to do that. And so, we've kind of been systematically doing that. And and Bill Lanahan, Bill Lanahan who joined our company about four years ago. Um, you know, it was definitely with the goal that he would he would take over as CEO. And he's got an amazing uh, amazing background, uh, mainly from private equity, but in lot, been in lots of different businesses. And so. Um, You know, it was one of those things where we worked together, and at first I was CEO and he was president, and then we were co-CEOs, and then uh, we decided, we both decided that okay, well, we'll switch that up. Um, So I've been, you know, this this uh, this big shiny box over here has been my obsession for the past uh, three years. So um, this is this is the our new Infinity system. and so, you know, it, it really has been uh, me focusing on that as much as possible. And I'm probably the least qualified clean tech CTO you'll ever find. <laughs> tell <laughs> so us, tell, us,
1: tell us about the shiny box.
2: Yeah, so the so the shiny box, um, this this actually uh, is the output of a, of a thesis I got pretty clear on about three years ago and um, went to work convincing everybody else in the company and, and our board and our investors and everybody, which is that... The future of of, um, what we were doing um, was not to be what I would consider worse than the grid but available anywhere, but to just be better than the grid, right? Just for solar and battery, just be fundamentally cheaper and more reliable than the grid. And if we succeed in that in the developing world, then the market is almost limitless. And to the extent – and what we we had been doing, I think our sector had been doing – was really focusing on, okay, let's make really small systems that are really efficient for certain use cases, um, you know, for, for lighting and TVs. And I don't want to minimize that because that's still, that's what we do every day, and we solve a lot of people's problems with that. But if you think about the long run, you think about the amount of money that's been invested in the company, you think about where it needs to go, you say, well, battery's going to get cheaper, solar panel's going to get cheaper, and so what's going to... Um, what's going to happen well it's going to be cheaper to generate an electron on your roof store it in the battery and then just use it rather than buy it from from the grid and i think we saw the first phase of that happen where it was cheaper to generate the electron in the us than it was to buy it from the grid and that that prompted a huge boom and so it was somewhat inevitable if you look at the math that that was going to happen even if you included storage but then the thing in the developing world is people also pay for reliability they don't just pay they just don't look at grid costs and so what Infinity does is it's it's pretty amazing. You you just plug in the power grid into this, and you plug in solar, and it's 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 almost plug and play. It's it's um, there's, you need an electrician for about an hour, but that's it, and they they just wire in your 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 panel on the wall. Um, and then the power coming in can be the worst quality power you can imagine. It can be the worst quality grid with voltage spikes and power cuts and brownouts and everything you can imagine, and what's coming out is just pure, clean, uh, 24-7 power from the lowest cost source. So if you have solar, that's using that. If you have solar storing in the battery, it's, it's using that. And we really designed this for the developing world from the bottom up, and a really key part was modularity. So financing a, you know, a $25,000 solar and battery system is achievable in the US, it's, it's a real stretch in places like Kenya or Nigeria. And so what people need to be able to do is buy the system in essentially smaller chunks, solve their problems a kind of step at a time, put their most critical loads on a system like this and then grow it until they're just energy independent and, and um, the grid's a backup and then maybe they have a generator that's backup to the backup.
1: So the team today has built this Infinity system, 25 people in California, about 25 in Amsterdam, and then how many others around the world?
2: Oh, there's there's a good 1,000 in, in, the, in the various countries. Um, a lot of those folks are doing kind of direct sales or service, so really kind of on the ground uh, making it happen.
1: And a million people getting power from the systems that Zola has enabled? Yep. Um, and I, I can guess why, but in your words why did you change the name from off-grid electric to zola? Uh,
2: that's a that's a great question. So we never we never actually market ourselves as off-grid electric in um, uh, in uh, our markets. So in in Tanzania and in in, in Nigeria etc. we I'm I'm kind of of the school of obvious naming so you try to name the company the most obvious thing you can think of and and I when we started, it was like, okay, well, we're like General Electric, but we're off-grid, so we're like off-grid electric. <laughs> and uh, so we are got to be the electric company for everybody who doesn't have the grid. And, and, of course, we became eventually like the increasingly inaptly named off-grid electric because we started serving customers who were on a weak grid. But then also... We had a local brand called Empower, uh, but I didn't realize you couldn't trademark power. It's pretty dumb. Uh, so then eventually we said, okay, well, we need a brand that can work in all our African markets. And we did a bunch of work on that. We came up with Zola. So we were Zola in Africa for probably two years before we were Zola to our partners and investors and everybody else. And then we finally said, okay, well, it's stupid for us to have two names. So so then Pete Reeve, I think, came up with Zola Electric, and that was, that was what, we, what we want. Nice. Nice.
1: Um- what were your darkest moments, and specifically, how close did you ever get to closing the doors? Was that weeks? Was that
2: days? Was that hours? Um, I think there were. Well, there's a few ways to score that. I, <laughs> I, I say you. I, you know, I say I, startups only done when the entrepreneur's done. <laughs> but uh, well the. I, there were three different times where we were very close to zero in the bank account. So um, that, was, that was for sure uh, some times where um, I could have kept working there for free, but everybody else would have not been able to. Um, and, and then there was, I think, one time before we kind of, uh, before we really kind of hit our stride in the early days, I think we tried, we had a few false starts in maybe the first four or five months we were there. And I remember just sitting in my, my little office like four months in and just thinking, oh, idiot. <laughs> like, like you're just, you're just going to squander everybody's money and you're going to have, have to go back and you have to, have to get a job in San Francisco. And like, you know, um, and, and, I, and I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm like no further here than when, you know, than the day we arrived. And I think it was like, It was funny, but it was like hitting that point was like the next day was like, oh, more living rooms. That's what it needs (laughs) to be, more living rooms. And so then I got the uh, guy who worked with us to take me. He's like, I was like, just take me to the nearest off-grid house you can find and I hadn't realized at that point that it was literally next door to us mm. was the nearest one. Wow. <laughs> and she was right under the power lines. And so oh I was like, Oh, why is that? Okay. Well then we got a whole down a whole interesting track. Well, it actually costs lots of money to, you have to pay for the poles and you have to pay for the wires yourself to get power. If you're in the developing world and you have to pay for your own meter. And so it's like a, or $500 capital investment just to get power that's unreliable and expensive. So um, so she didn't have that. And she was spending $30 a month on kerosene because she was using it as a nightlight. So she had a baby. So she was like burning kerosene, kerosene lamp all night. Mm. And so it's like, okay, I know I can give her something better for $30 a month than she's, you know, than she's got right now. And so that really kind of sent me down a path to, to all of what I, you know, what I shared with you guys.
1: Mm. What lesson took the longest to learn?
2: Um, I think the lesson that took the longest, um, was, even though I talk about being customer centric, it was focused on the customer, but also I think really understand their situation. So I think from a hardware perspective, we did pretty well on focusing on a customer. I think on a credit perspective, we had a lot of learnings over the years. We sure learned about seasonal incomes. We learned about what happens when the cash crop prices drop. We learned about everything you can imagine. We learned about how a small business is different than a home, is, you know a rural home is different than an urban home. We learned about how loans are made in the developing world and why, even though it's really frustrating, um, I don't know if people know here, but the average microfinance loan interest rate is about 100%, APR, and is about 12 months long. Hmm. Uh, so that gives you a sense of the cost of lending to, to rural, uh, households. Um, so you have to think, okay, how do you, you know, can I really lend at cheaper rates than that? And if so, why, why do I, why do I believe I can? And what you learn is hardware control of is, is necessary, but not sufficient to get better payment rates, Mm. right? So it's, it's a necessary part of it, but it's not in and of itself, uh, sufficient to get people to pay reliably.
1: Mm. How old were you when you started Zola?
2: Oh, I was. Uh, let's see, what would that be? Yeah, I would have been thirty, thirty-three, I guess. Yeah.
1: And how was it? Um, I know you had one kid at the time. Now you have two. How was it uh, being a young founder and also being a parent? How did you manage that?
2: Um, it was. It was hard. It was hard. I mean, I remember. In the early days of Better World Books, we used to have textbook rush. So everybody get back to school, and our orders would go 10x what they were, you know, a month before. And so we just sleep under the shipping table. You know, we would just <laughs> literally work around the clock. And and um, I think with this, it was it was hard because there was there was that balance. You don't want to miss out on years of your of your kid's life, but there's also unlimited things to do and not enough to do them. And so you you know, truth is, you end up just not solving any of it that well. I, I think I could have been a better startup founder if I didn't have kids and I, you know and I could have been a better dad if I wasn't a startup founder. Mm. So it's like you kind of try to do both the best you can and and know that it's okay.
1: How was starting the company on your relationship? Uh not the
2: best. <laughs> not the best. So we are we are we are uh split up albeit amicably, but um yeah, it um I I think it was, it was really hard. Um, And it was, and you can imagine when you're, when you're doing both of those things, how much time you have to, to give to a a relationship. And so I do think that uh, people, you know, you just have to be sober about the sacrifices. And I think you really have to be, you know, if you do it as a partnership, like it's okay. You just have to be really bought into, this is what life's going to be like, and it's going to suck for a while. And, you know, we'll come out the other side one way or another.
1: What were the greatest, benefits if any and then the greatest challenges of being white and western operating in a market like Tanzania
2: um you know they're kind of in a weird way they're kind of the same it's um it's a weird kind of uh reverse discrimination in a sense right because you're you're walking around white in a place that's you know basically 100% black um and and you know swahili indian more or less those two right and and um, so the only white people there are expatriates whose average income, even if they're there with an NGO, is probably 10 times to 20 times what, the, you know, what a local person's average income will be. So you, know, you are overcharged on every single thing that anybody can get away with. <laughs> and there's all sorts of kickback schemes and all these things you don't even realize. So you have to become an expert on what is the price of every single thing. And I remember, um, you know, Erica had worked in 10 years in Tanzania before, um, you know, before we started the company. And so I remember her haggling over things that will cost like $4. And I'd be like, Erica, like, why are you haggling over these avocado prices, you know? And it'd be like a slip, you know, her view was a slippery slope. Like the second that people knew that, you know, you would pay double what an avocado really costs, they're going to charge you double for something much more. Um, and your staff is going to see that, too. And so they're going to bring you back and say, oh, yeah, this thing costs $20, when really it costs 16 and they're getting four of it. you know. And um, there's, you know, the, just like in the U.S., the vast majority of people are honest and earnest and just trying to do the best they can. But it's almost impossible to identify who's that and who is is trying to make a few bucks off you. Um, and so I think that um, in some ways it was also really interesting learning um, – I took a trip uh, last summer um, with, uh, at this point, is very much an Africa expert. I took a, took a trip with my two kids uh, to, to Tanzania. We went, because uh, my, my little daughter had actually never been. And so we went, you know, we went on safari and we did a whole bunch of things. And um, all the local, all the guys at the safari camps and stuff were just generally flabbergasted. Like a guy is traveling with two kids and taking care of them himself? <laughs> this is not how we roll mm-hmm. in Africa, <laughs> Like guys do not take care of children. That's not what we do, and so it was. It was very much again this thing of like, oh, I it, in a weird way it it puts you as a as a white male who has all these privileges. Like you you stand out like a sore thumb, and I think it at least teaches you what what that experience mm-hmm.
1: is. Where will Zola Electric be in five years?
2: Uh, so, we. Um, in some ways we are we are so clear now on I mean clearer than we've ever been as a company, I think, on what we're doing and why it matters and how we get there. And so you know this this infinity system here really um, is the top end, and this other system and we call it Flex, um, is the bottom end of an energy ladder we've built that basically lets you start from rural off-grid to, you know. The nicest uh, house or, or uh, business in you know downtown Lagos or downtown Nairobi, and generate your own power, uh, consume your own power, do it in a very smart, sophisticated way, and then these systems are also built to network, so we can start to uh, we can start to build ad hoc grids where we're, where folks can buy and sell power um, and and really can electrify in a distributed manner, which I think when you look at these markets the the problem is not capital people spend a ton of money on really bad solutions for electricity and they really want to solve them. The problem is until distributed uh, electrification, it's, it's, you had to rely on the government. There was really no way that you as a business could, could solve your own electricity problem unless you build your own, I don't know, should, biomass plant or something and generate your own power with that. Um, and things are changing very, very quickly because um, businesses and homeowners are, are ex- extremely attuned to their power problems. They, really, really want to solve them. Um, and so I think this, this base of kind of beautifully designed solutions that just work and they work for a long time um, uh, is, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 it's exciting for me. So I, I think, um, you know, of course, everybody idolizes Apple, but I, I, we really did think when we built Infinity, like, okay, if Apple built like the world's smartest energy system, like, it just built the thing that everybody wanted so that, you know, the way if you go, if anybody ever, ever seen a solar hybrid system here, they're not pretty. It's like a sheet metal box and then, like, a bunch of wires exposed and connected to a bunch of batteries and a bunch of big lead batteries, usually. Um, it's dangerous. It's like you never even let your kids near it. And, and so this is, like, the opposite. This is something that um, is totally safe. And, and not only that, but anybody would want to show off. So whether they have it in their living room, whether they have it in the closet, I guarantee you the first, you know, first Nigerians to get this system, because we're just releasing it, they will show this to every single person that comes to their house. I'll be like, watch, power cuts, you can't even tell.
1: <laughs> we're going to close with our high voltage round. You've promised me that you have not listened to other episodes to know what these questions are going to be.
2: Emily, this is the scariest moment of the past <laughs> eight years, I just want to <laughs> tell you that. <laughs>
1: I'm honored. Uh, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why?
2: Oh man, that's easy. I'd be a dog. <laughs> How come? <laughs> just be, just be a you know dirty butt sniffing dog.
1: <laughs> 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 I want to note that you brought your dog here tonight. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: Oh man, I I think I would be. Um, I I still love the internet. I love I love the possibilities of the internet, and I think the internet's really early. And that's probably the only thing that I miss about being in clean tech is uh, you know all the all the fun of making things happen online. So I either do that or I I try to fix our broken political system.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
2: Um, I attribute absolutely none to my success. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think that. You know, I will. I will give my parents, um, uh, Tim and Jean, a lot of a lot of credit for doing one thing, which is just letting me pursue whatever it was I was after, and not asking, not mm-hmm. trying to force me down a path mm-hmm. of. Saying you know I, I went to college and I was just um, I, it didn't compute to me that all these other kids had already figured out they were going to be a lawyer or an accountant or you know something or a doctor or something like that and I realized eventually that yeah some of them got there on their own but a lot of them got a very very strong message from their parents that they needed to go to college that they needed to take the, the lowest risk way to make as much money as possible and, and that that was very important to their family and you know I, I understand that impulse especially if you know you're you're immigrants or, or or you're you're you know you've had to work really hard to Send your kid to college, but my, you know, my parents weren't well off. But they never, uh, you know, they never did that. They just tried to support me kind of the best they could with, with whatever stuff I was into, whether it was collecting comic books or um, building computers.
1: When have you failed?
2: Ooh, I. Um, I mean, I basically invented Facebook five years before Facebook did, and I didn't do anything with it. <laughs> so, that's a pretty pretty big blunder. <laughs>
1: that's, that's a good one. What's the best investment
2: you've ever made? Um, you know, I th- I think it actually was, it's kind of like a reverse investment, Um so economically, the very obvious choice would have been for me to stay with Better World Books and not go to Oxford, not start the solar company. Like just, it was a profitable business. It paid me really well. Um, you know, I own a big share in it. And um, and so I think doing that, I basically gave myself a 66% pay cut. I, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I Really couldn't go back to Better World in the future and be, be CEO of it. You know, that ship had sailed, and and so um, and it was also taking a year off and going to school rather than, um, you know, rather than working. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the amount of personal growth I've had just from really pushing myself to the limits has been immense, and and that just served me really well. So, mm-hmm. I'm grateful for that. What is
1: something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: Ooh. Um, Ooh, I got it. Ooh, yeah. Well, I, um, you know, I actually will will say this on the um, on the political side. I I I I I think I used to be a little dogmatic about more things, and I was I was more kind of a classical lefty, like all the guys on the you know all the guys on the other side of the aisle. What are they doing? They're destroying the country. Um, and now I, I I think I've actually um, become much more open to what I've realized is that everybody's actions and make perfect sense in their own, um, you know, their own view of the world. And so, um, the extent that someone believes something very different than I do is, is informed by a bunch of experiences they've had that, that I haven't had. And so I think there's some political parties that very cynically manipulate that. And that's, that's, I think the big problem, but I do, you know, I really do realize having lived all over the world and traveled all over the road that you know most people are fundamentally want the same things and have the same hold the same basic things dear.
1: Hmm. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: Um I'd be a price on carbon. That's easy. Nice. An escalating price that would go up between five and seven percent every year until the problem was solved.
1: I love your pragmatism. <laughs> if
2: there was just one person
1: that was gonna hear this podcast, who would you want it to be?
2: Oh, definitely Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> 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 Donald Trump and my mom are the two people that, and my mom will listen, so I just got one I got to work on.
1: Um, what is the hardest kind of help to ask for?
2: Oh, man, it's, I think, I think the hardest is to ask for help on things you think you're good at. I think it's easy to ask for things you you don't think you know anything about, but mm-hmm. I've always um, found when I ask people I respect for uh, advice on, on almost any kind of business question, a lot of times they're, um, they're I don't know their lack of the, it's the curse of knowledge, right? You know, I know too much about all the problems that I deal with in my in my business, and so um, somebody just coming in new and saying, well, why don't you do this or why don't you do that? Um, You know can be can be incredibly valuable but it's i think it's a more vulnerable thing to ask Mm -hmm. for what is your best quality um i'm relentlessly optimistic and and pretty earnest (laughs) what is your worst trait um i have five good ideas a day (laughs) that i think are good ideas The actual, I think it's a good idea to actual good idea ratio is relatively <laughs> low. <laughs> and, and so is my ability to a- actively act on those. So,
1: Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because?
2: Uh, they don't focus on the fundamentals. If you really knew me, you would know? Uh, you would know that um, I'm, I'm really thoughtful and sensitive even if I don't always come off that way, success is. Uh, success is being aligned, being being. I think in the um, you know, not not trying to chase something, but being being content where you are.
1: Hmm. If I could have done one thing
2: differently, I would have um, gotten more tattoos.
1: <laughs> <laughs> how, I have to ask how many do you have now? I only have
2: one but I'm thinking of I, I've, I've been thinking I need to get more So <laughs> <laughs> this is a first on what it takes <laughs> um,
1: if the world knew me for just one thing it would be
2: um, I, I always uh, I, I would say I made a, made a little dent and, and did, uh, you know, did work I thought was important I'm most proud of. Um, I'm most proud of uh, the relationships that I have with um, people close to me and, and with my kids. Hmm. To build a successful startup, what it takes is. Oh, the punchline. Um, the last question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think what it takes is is just like sticking sticking to it no matter what showing up every day with optimism and um, with uh, uh, you know uh, with an open mind
1: with that please give a huge round of applause for Xavier (laughs) you can listen to all our what it takes interviews since 2017 right here and join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon free future their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhousef Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.